Hey everyone, you're listening to the MLEPC podcast. Thank you for joining us. The podcast features every previous Sunday's sermon and plenty of other cool content like interviews and mini-series. Please remember to share our content and subscribe to our channel so you can stay up to date with everything that we create. You can find out more about what's happening at the church by visiting our website at mlepc.org or checking us out on our social media. Once again, we thank you for tuning in to the Emily PC podcast, and we hope to see you at an event soon. As Pastor Cinda said that we are uh, going through Revelation, and she mentioned we're, we didn't realize until we published the first edition of the study guide that the, the videos are in a slightly different order from the scriptures. So um, if, for those of you following along with the small groups and the, and the video series, go in the video order, not in the scripture order. So next week we'll do the beginning of Revelation 3, and then we'll go back to the end of Revelation 2 the following week. Um, so just, just so you are, can follow along with us. Uh, as, we, as we turn to the scripture this, today, we are looking at a really strange metaphor that, that gets brought up. And you have to really know your Old Testament to understand what is going on here. So I'm going to read a ch- chunk from a story in Numbers 22, and then we'll look at the passage from Revelation. So this is Numbers 22, verses 1 through 6. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw that, that Israel, all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up grass in the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, said, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, a people has come up out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whatever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. And then turning over to Revelation 2, keep that story in mind. This is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who have held to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the the sword in my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let, let us pray together. Holy God, we do thank you for your word. Oh Lord, we have a world full of words, but only your words are the ones that lead to eternal life. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now, that you would let your words soak into our hearts, souls, minds, and spirits, that we would not just hear them, but be transformed by them and be doers of your word, sharers of your love and your grace with the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we have looked at these different stories in Revelation, excuse me, I have a scratchy throat this morning. Um, when you think about the first, ch the first church that we heard about, that was the church of Ephesus. If you had to sum up this, that letter in, in, in just a few words, it would be love more, love more, return to your first love. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we were talking about the church in Smyrna. I, I would pick brace yourself uh, as the words to say for that one. Remember that incredible line, be not afraid of, of what you are about to suffer. Great, thanks God. <laughs> but it's brace yourself, I will be with you, you will be ready. If I had to sum up this letter to, the, to Pergamum in a very short bit of words, I would say, knock it off. <laughs> He has the harshest words yet for the, for the church at Ber Pergamum. They have been faithful. They have been standing up um, even in the face of persecution. And yet they are being deceived and they are being drawn away from God. And Jesus calls them out on that and calls them to repent, to knock it off, and to come back to Jesus, who is the source of our identity and the source of our provision. Do not follow after all of these other gods, but rather stay close to the Lord and he will provide. He will be with you for all time. When we think about Pergamum, that's probably not a, a, a city you've heard of much. We Obviously, Ephesus we've heard of, Smyrna maybe, but Pergamum is a feels a little more obscure right now. But back in those days, it was actually the capital city of that whole region. That it was the, one of the most powerful cities around, and they had early on made a deal with Rome. Rome, as their empire had expanded, they had, they had all of the, the west, and they had the, the Middle East, but they didn't have what is now modern-day Turkey, especially western Turkey. That was the, the one part of their, of their whole network that they didn't control. But the, the king of Pergamum saw the writing on the wall and decided that he'd rather keep his enemies close. So, he, so he, he ended up deeding, when he died, he deeded all of that kingdom to the Romans. So suddenly they were a favorite spot. They weren't a place to be conquered. They were a place uh, to be enjoyed and, and, and where Rome could be celebrated. So it was one of the few cities that was allowed to have a temple to a living emperor. So there was a temple to Augustus, and then later about this time, there's a temple to Trajan, one of the other Caesars. There were all these other temples too. Most of you can remember back to what was it, eighth grade uh, literature, and remember reading about Greek mythology, Zeus was always the top god. Well, there was a temple to Zeus in this town. There was a temple to Asclepios, uh, let's see if I can pronounce that one right, Asclepios, who was the, the god of healing. And he was referred to as the Savior. 
and people would come from miles and miles around to be healed at, at that temple. He also had that his symbol was a snake. So serpents became, became the symbol of this whole town. It was a, it was a town centered on, on power. It was a town simple, centered around idolatry, around paganism. It was also a, a town centered around intele intellectualism. It was the second largest library in the world at that point. It was 200,000 volumes in the library at Pergamum, second only to the library at Alexandria in Egypt. So it was a center of intellectuals, of power, and of worship. And in the middle of this, you can just imagine how hard this was for the people who believed in Jesus Christ. This was not a setup for a, a thriving, healthy church in the center of everything. It was, it was a setup for you to be an outcast, for you to be persecuted, for you to be excluded from participation in the whole community. This, because this was a, the capital city, the consul, the head of this city, had what was called the right of the sword. It was, it was the right to, to have capital punishment for any reason whatsoever if they just so chose. The right of the sword. So that was one of the identities of, of the church. And when we turn to the scripture, as Jesus Christ is speak to, speaking to them, hear how Jesus identifies himself. These are the words of him who has the sharp, the sharp double-edged sword. So Jesus is saying, I know where you live. I, I know that that sword feels like it's over your head, but I'm the one with the real sword. I'm the one who has the real power. The rest of the power is an illusion. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, the, the word martyr is right there, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There's a lot of different scholars have different theories about what he means by Satan's throne. Um, some say that the tableland, that's the sort of the pinnacle of the city, uh, a thousand feet above sea level, looked kind of like a throne. There was a big throne in the temple of Zeus. But most scholars think it probably means that, that he's referring to uh, the emperor, the Roman emperor, as the, the manifestation of Satan. And the, the connection between the snake and, and, and the city was, was pretty obvious. So they are, here they are right in the middle of the devil's den, essentially. And Jesus is saying, I'm here and I'm the one who has the, the double-edged sword. Do you remember another place in scripture where it talks about the double-edged sword? Um, Hebrews equates the double-edged sword with the word of God. This is what Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So Jesus is saying, I, I am the one who has the power. I'm the one who has the sword, but it's not just any sword. It is the one that is able to divide joints and marrow, thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So Jesus is about to tell them what they're doing really well and what they need to knock off. Because he can divide that cleanly between, uh, between good and evil, between truth and compromise because he knows who he is, because he, he is the truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life. So even though they're in the middle of this, 
horribly oppressive environment, even though they're one of the first communities to have a martyr. Antipas, we don't know what he did, but we know that he died a really brutal death. The descriptions of it in some of the, the ancient writings are, are horrific, and I will spare them for you now. But, but they endured even when they saw a leader in their church killed. And yet, they are beginning to compromise, and that is what Jesus calls out in them. It's a, it's a weird thing when you, you hear this, like... Uh, it, it, it talks about who old did the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites. That seems like a really obscure reference. And the first time I read it, I, like, and then the fourth and fifth time I read it, I'm like, okay, God, what are you trying to say here? But it's really interesting to go back to that story and realize what happened. So the, the Israelites have just come up out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness, and they've camped right next to Moab. Now, Moab is terrified of this. I mean, the, the, it, the Bible describes them as almost a million people. So you have that number of people camped right next to you. You are going to panic. So Mo, the, the king of Moab decides that the best thing that he can possibly do is pay somebody to help. So he calls on Balaam. Balaam is supposed to be a prophet. He's supposed to have some power that, that, that legend has it that as, Bala, as Balak says to him, um, for I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. This is the same guy. You all probably, when you hear Balaam, you think of one story, Balaam and his talking donkey. Balaam was the one that was supposed to come and curse the people of God and he was being paid to do so. And yet, God absolutely stopped him dead in his tracks. The, the donkey wouldn't go any farther, and the, he kept beating the donkey, and all of a sudden the donkey's like, look, <laughs> Balaam. They just couldn't believe what he was hearing, that, it, that out, of his out of the mouth of the donkey came a warning, and suddenly Balaam's eyes were open, and he saw a, an angel with a flaming sword standing in front of him. God was not going to allow this direct attack on his people. He was not going to allow this man to, to come and curse his people. And he ended up having to speak a blessing over them, even though Balak is like, what are you doing, dude? But he, he kept, every time he opened his mouth, words of blessing instead of curses came out. Well, Balak's like, okay, this isn't working. We've got to attack these people, but, but the direct attack is not working. So what happens? They try a, a lateral attack, a sideways attack instead. It is an attack that is so subtle, but it almost destroys the Israelites. In Numbers 31, it says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. They enticed the Israelites, rather than attacking them, they led them into temptation. And what was that temptation? We see it in, in Numbers 25. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So they sent in, in spy language, it's called a honey trap. They sent in the women to distract them and to lead them away from Yahweh. Yahweh, the God who had delivered them up out of Egypt, who had protected them and provided for them, suddenly they get enticed into immorality, into, into idol worship through that, 
and, and basically into prostrating themselves into these foreign gods. And the anger of the Lord became so great because they had been drawn away that 24,000 people were killed in a plague before they finally repented and turned away from what they were doing. So this direct attack on the Israelites didn't work, but the, the, the sideways attack worked exactly according to plan. And they probably killed, the, the plague probably killed more people than, than Moab ever would have been able to because they didn't see it coming. They allowed themselves to be drawn away from the worship of Yahweh. And this is exactly what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum. You have withstood a, a direct attack. You withstood the attack against Antipas. You, you stayed faithful. And yet this sideways attack is drawing you away. You are giving yourselves into idolatry. Probably the sexual immorality plus the food sacrifice idols were both part of the worship of the gods in their temples. Uh, if, they, if they went to a, a guild banquet for the, you know, the craftsmen's guild or whatever, they would have to be part of a pagan ritual. And they were willing to compromise in order to get what they needed which was financial security or power or standing in the community. They were willing to do all of these things so they wouldn't be excluded. And yet it became this perversion in all sorts of different aspects of their lives. In our video uh, for this week, Joseph Stoll says it's the problem is too much Pergamum in the church. So the, the culture was getting into the church and the church was compromising in the, in the midst of it all. So they're, you know, these might be recent converts, but they're sort of sneaking back into their old way of life. They're, they're, they're doing the things that made them comfortable before and kept them safe before. But in doing so, they're compromising their faith. And what he's saying, Jesus is saying, is that it's not, I know that not all of you are doing that, but you're accommodating that. Pastor Cinda will pre preach in a couple of weeks and she'll be addressing that kind of tolerance and the problem with that, what that's doing to the people and how that compromises their faith. So they've made all of these compromises of who they are because they want to stay safe, they want to stay provided for, they'd rather go that way than have to make all of the sacrifices involved in, in living a Christian life. And the amazing thing here is that Jesus uses, uses pretty violent language to tell them that this is a bad thing. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That is, that's really scary. Jesus, the one with the two-edged sword, is going to come in and cut out anything that is not of God. He is, is not going to hold back. He is not going to provide, uh, you know, an easy out. He's like, this is intolerable. This isn't just a little bit off. This is intolerable for the people of God. And he will cut it out. How are ways that you and I and our culture have led us into idolatry? We don't usually, you know, go and sacrifice at the temple of Zeus very often. That's not the problem. But idols, C.S. Lewis one time said that, that, that our hearts are idol-making factories. We can make an idol out of almost anything, anything in our lives that become more important to us than God. Tim Keller has a, a really powerful book uh, called Counterfeit Gods. It's Counterfeit Gods, the Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. 
This book was written in 2009, but he is amazingly astute at naming the gods that we have in 2022. 13 years later, and he's still nailing us by what he says about idols. He, he says, an idol is whatever you, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Oh, what is it that you value so much that when you have it, you'll be significant and secure? I tell you, one of my biggest ones is the approval of other people. Am I okay? Am I doing good enough? Am I willing to speak the truth even if that means I'm going to be rejected? Boy, that's hard to do sometimes. When you speak truth, are you willing to do that even if it's going to get you rejected? Is it going to make you feel insignificant and insecure? Or are you going to say something that will keep people happy but compromise? Keller goes on to say, idols give us a sense of being in control. How often do we make control an idol? If we, they give us a sense of being in control, and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? What if we lost it? That we, what if we lost it would make life not worth living? What if you lost, what in your life, if you lost it, would make life not worth living? Where does your identity come from? Where does your worth come from? It can be success. It can be staying busy. It can be, it can be family some days too, but it, it can be anything that twists you. Like a lot of people sacrifice their families on the idol of, for the idol of success. What is it that we, we captivate? Is it, is it approval from other people? Is it a, a fear of rejection? What is it that if we have it, we will feel secure and safe? But if we let go, we'll feel vulnerable and exposed. Jesus is saying, are you trusting me to protect you? Are you trusting me to provide for you? Or are you chasing these idols that will hold you and captivate you? It seems like something good. It seems like something that you can hide in, but yet instead it's pulling you away from Jesus Christ. I think that the pandemic exposed a lot of our idols. Do you remember? I mean, during the lockdown, that, that first few weeks, all of a sudden, everything in our world was stopped. It was the craziest feeling. It was like all of the things that we would go to for comfort and solace and, and purpose, all of a sudden stopped. It was, it was really devastating for a whole lot of people. And even now, where those idols are still being exposed, what are we going to for, for comfort? I was reading a book last week about uh, trauma, and, and one of the things it says that when a group has experienced trauma, they become more aggressive and divisive. And, and I think part of it is because we, we start clinging to the things that make us safe, and we start, start wanting to protect those rather than allowing the Lord to heal our hearts and heal our experiences. Aggressive and divisive, is, if that's not the de description of the United States in the last three years, I don't know what is. This book was written two decades ago. God is saying, what are you making an idol? And one of the most powerful paragraphs, and I, this is going to be a little bit of a long quote, but this one just, I felt like nailed what's been going on in our, in our country in the last few weeks. Again, 13 years ago, 
Keller writes, when love of one's people becomes an absolute, it turns into racism. When love of equality turns into a supreme thing, it can result in hatred and violence toward anyone who has led a privileged life. It is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. He goes on to talk about the spiritual vacuum that people may fill with, with romantic relationships or, or other uh, or like things like money. But he says, uh, we can also look to politics. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into a kind of religion. Have you seen that happen in our, in our country lately? And I'm not saying one side is better than the other. A lot of people have turned a political policy or a political person into the, the thing that will save us. But if anything, is, if we look to anything other than Jesus Christ to save us, we are being attacked from the side and we are compromising what it is that we believe. He wants us to keep our eyes first and foremost on Jesus. And then the rest of the things can, can be used to follow him, but they can't, we cannot follow, follow those things and compromise what we believe in Jesus Christ. The, um, the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary says the, almost exactly the same thing. He said, we have to be careful. He wrote this in 2016. We have to be careful because patriotism has crossed the line into idolatry. And we've seen that happen. My brother is in the Marines. He's a, a, a lieutenant colonel in the Marines. He's lost a lot of friends uh, when he was in Afghanistan and Iraq. We all can think of people and families that have been attacked or impacted by the wars that, that our country has been through. And we honor them on this Memorial Day. We are grateful for their sacrifice. But we know that the ultimate sacrifice is not to a country. It's laying down our lives for, for Jesus Christ, for doing what is right, for following him. We thank the Lord for these people. We are grateful for this country. But Jesus Christ is, is the ultimate sacrifice, is the ultimate guide and leader. What if we didn't have this country? What would we have? If your answer is nothing, then you need to think about putting Jesus into that goal, into that, into that center. Think about the refugees who have lost everything. We've been ministering to a group of Afghan refugees who have lost everything. They have lost their country. They've lost their, their identity in their homes. And they've had to come to a place where there is nothing left. What would you do in that situation? What would you do if you had to lose everything in your life? Keller also says, you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you had. There was a time uh, early on in my time with World Vision, I was in Mozambique, and I, I, I was trying to do, I was really young, I was 24, trying to do a job that was way bigger than me, but I was just the, the warm body they were able to stick in that spot. And I figured that as long as I worked hard enough, I could finally get everything done. And I run, ran myself ragged, and then I, I got malaria, and it was laid out on, on my bed, and just had nothing. 
And I remember crying out to the Lord, God, I can't do this. I have nothing left. All I have is you. And Jesus went, thank you. You finally figured it out. All you have is me. All you have is me. God sometimes will strip away our idols in order to bring us back to himself. To, to let us see all of the things we've been clinging to. He takes those away. He divides them with his two-edged sword so that we can see that he is all we need. He is all we have. Jesus calls out to the people, repent, turn away from these things that are filling your hearts other than Christ. Repent of that. And then he offers this reward. You know that in every one of these letters, he offers a promise. And this is what he says in this one. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. When the people were, were following after these pagan gods and compromising, they were doing so to fill their, their, their physical needs and their, uh, their, their social needs. But God is saying, I will give you some of the hidden manna. What, what is manna? Manna is provision in the wilderness. Manna is the promise that God will provide even when it seems like there's nothing left. God is saying, let go of all of these other things and I will provide for you. I will provide. The hidden manna, it, it, it may mean where, where Jeremiah hid the, the jar of manna uh, when, when the Babylonians came and, and captured Jerusalem, but it also refers to the, the hidden storehouses in heaven of God's ultimate provision that he will provide even when we have to let go of things that we are holding on to for provision in this world. God is the one who provides the, the manna for us to eat. And then this white stone with a, with a new name on it. What in the world was that? The white stone had several different meanings in that culture. It was um, it, one thing that is amazing. It was used when, when a jury trial was held. Jurors were given a black stone and a white stone. And when they were going to cast somebody as guilty, they would put in the black stone. If they were going to vote for someone to be innocent or acquitted, they'd put in the white stone. So this, this white stone represented forgiveness. But more commonly, it was used as an admission into often exclusive parties. Uh, a person's name would be written on it, and you would hand this to the, the gatekeeper and be allowed into this party. So here, they had been going into all these parties where everybody was, where the people of power were, the, the, the meet and greet time with the important people. But God is saying, reject that, and I will, I will invite you into the best party you can even imagine. And, and, and I will give you a new identity. I'll put a new name on this white stone. I will call you by a new name, a new name that is redeemed. And Isaiah talks about God calling us by name and saying, you are mine. And that's the invitation of this white stone. Jesus saying, come, I will provide for you, and I will invite you into a place where you will have everything that you need. You will have identity, you'll have, have meaning and purpose, security, love, grace, and forgiveness. When Keller wrote, 
when I have that, I'll, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. Jesus is saying, you, every single one of you have value. Come take this white stone. Come be in a place where you are significant, where you will be secure. Don't trust in all of these other things that are as fleeting as a breath. Hold on to what I have for you. Repent and turn to me, and I will make you precious, cherished, forgiven, safe and secure for all of your days. Hi, this is Pastor Carolyn. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check out our website at mlepc.org and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a podcast. Have a blessed day.